Welcome to De Beautiful's Digital Book Tour. This podcast series is a way for authors to connect with readers throughout America, even though their tours have been canceled due to COVID-19. To discover more debut authors, please visit debeautiful.net and subscribe to the podcast feed where we have in-depth interviews with people like Chelsea Beaker, Brandon Taylor, and Emma Copley-Eisenberg. Today's guest has been a Latin teacher for more than 20 years and is also a highly sought-after tattooer. He was born in Saigon, grew up in Pennsylvania, and currently lives in Maine. His name is Fook Tran. His debut memoir, Saigon, a Misfits Memoir of Great Books, Punk Rock, and the Fight to Fit In, is out on April 21st. Hey, Fook, how you doing today? Oh, you know, um, I feel like the, you know, rule book for pretty much every social uh, decorum and rule has been blown up. So it's great. You know, like I wear sweatpants every day. Nobody cares. You know, my my coworkers are my six and nine year old daughters whom I'm homeschooling. So that's that's going, you know, that's like just above a catastrophe. I think, you know, like I think, yeah, as long as no one breaks anything, I think it'll be fine. But uh, I don't know how good their math or reading skills are. (laughs) Yes, I I could imagine living through this with children. It's luckily just me. And animals and my partner. So it's like we just are in sweatpants. Like you said, sweatpants, uh, working from bed a lot. Not even working from a desk anymore. (laughs) We gave up. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Yeah. Right. It's just like, it's like, it's like making myself a Manhattan, you know, at like lunchtime. I'm like, is this okay? I'm like, who's going to fire me right now? (laughs) Exactly. No, I definitely have my, my uh, 12 p.m. beer. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) you know, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I should just ease it up, right? It's like, I'm going to tell my wife. She's like, oh, really? I was like, Adam told me a beer at noon is totally fine. It's healthy for you. It gets gets you moving. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Um, That's good. (laughs) uh, We're chatting because you have your memoir, uh, Saigon, a myth, uh, excuse me, Saigon, a Misfits memoir of great books, punk rock, and the fight to fit in. Tell me a little bit about the memoir from your perspective. Why did you decide to write it? Um, yeah, I, um, so about in 2012, um, I gave a TEDx talk um, about, well, I mean, I gave a TEDx talk um, about a couple of things. It's about like language um, and it's about sort of like the immigrant or the refugee experience and growing up in, you know, small town PA. And, um, you know, it was the first time that I'd ever publicly shared uh, my story as a refugee. Um, and it, I, I sort of decided that I was going to go for broke and that if I had such a, if, if it was the, it was, if it was the biggest platform I was ever going to have, I might as well just, for the fences and um that TEDx talk um just got a lot of attention and enthusiasm um from viewers and I thought oh like maybe you know I felt really encouraged and buoyed by that experience and the reception of the TEDx talk and so I started thinking in the back of my brain like oh this would be a really nice like retirement project like write a memoir um just because people seemed interested in it and um and then I got approached, I'll do sort of the short version. I, I was approached by an agent in New York who saw the TEDx talk and asked me if I was interested in writing a memoir. And um, yeah, and we kind of like went from there. Um, so it was kind of like a, a fortuitous, you know, kind of conver- convergence of I was thinking about it already. And then this um, literary agent from New York, Sarah Levitt, approached me and asked me if I was interested. Yeah. And 
before we jump into your reading, I know before we started uh, recording, I mentioned how my father lives in Maine and you live in Maine. I, I neglected to mention that I am from Pennsylvania as well. Oh, um, no way. Yeah, so <laughs> what, what I, I'm from Scranton, and then I lived uh, for oh, about yeah. six months down in York County, so ne- closer to Carlisle. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah for but, sure. But I, I, our two yep, lives... But, uh, so... I was going to say, our two lives, as different as they are, follow a similar ge- geography, in theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, well, yeah, for sure. And uh, I think, you know, that, that rural PA or small town PA experience is, um, you know, I think people, it's not... You know, it's not Philadelphia and it's not Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. Um, yep, yep. And then part of this podcast is I ask authors to do a reading. And I love the little email you sent me earlier, if, if profanity is okay. Profanity is 100% okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, good, good, good. So you could jump into your okay. reading uh, whenever you're ready. Yeah, so um, so for your listeners, I the um, the book is organized each chapter is organized by or told through the lens of a great um classic work and you know so there's like the scarlet letter you know and then there's like you know a chapter called carmen punishment and madame bovary so i thought you know and the thought was that um i would use each each book as a way to be a lens through which i told my story um and so i thought i'd just read the opening to chapter eight which is the metamorphosis um, just to kind of give people a sense of how I'm telling my story through the lens of um, liter- literature. <clears throat> yep. Chapter 8, The Metamorphosis. Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis is a simple story. Gregor Samsa awakes to find himself transformed into a giant bug. When he discovers that he's a giant bug, he immediately looks at the clock and thinks about which train he can still catch to get to work on time. By himself, he's not freaking out about being a giant roach at all. His parents and sister, whom he's been supporting, freak out. His supervisor from work shows up and freaks out. Gregor has turned into a bug, but he does not freak out about his transformation until... He has to navigate his relationships with his family and his work supervisor. You read the metamorphosis and you realize it's his family's ugliness towards Gregor that moves the story. Gregor is now a giant roach and he cannot do anything about it. His family, instead of acting with compassion and kindness, sends Gregor to his room and locks the door. What's worse than turning into a giant bug? turning into a giant bug and having your family act like a bunch of assholes. And isn't that adolescence a biological change over which we have no control? And then our family, like a bunch of assholes, treats us like an insect in the midst of its metamorphosis that we ourselves hardly understand. Suddenly, with a different focus from the perspective of a bug, we see who they are. Let's wrap it up there. I do appreciate that you you tie in literature, and I, I feel like this interview is going to be like a Spark Notes version of of the memoir in whole because your your life is super interesting, um, which helps a memoir, you know. Um, so for people who don't know, I guess you know, tell us about moving to Carlisle, moving to small town Pennsylvania. 
Sure. Um, so my, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam, um, and uh, my father was, um, I think, like 23. Well, when we left, he was 25. We left in 1975 when the South Vietnamese government collapsed. Um, my grandparents um, actually worked for the U.S. Embassy or the U.S. government, um, and they were, um, they uh, you know, I'm not really to this day, I'm still not sure what exactly they did, but they had, you know, like some kind of security clearance and they were part of that initial evacuation of American collaborators that the U.S. government thought was important to do. You know, if they had been left behind, we would have just all been executed, you know, probably like shot in a ditch or something. So um, my parents got my grandparents got out um, and were able to bring some family members along. And then I was one of them. Um, and then we basically, you know, sort of skipped across the Pacific and then into the U.S. And then U.S. government, there were there were about 130,000 um, initial Vietnamese evacuees. And the U.S. government kind of established four separate uh, relocation camps in the U.S. Uh, one was in Arkansas, one was in Florida, one was in Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, which is where we ended up. And then there was one in uh, California. And then, um, yeah, basically we, the, that first wave of Vietnamese evacuees were all in those relocation camps. And then we just kind of hung out until American families would come and sponsor us or, you know, the Vietnamese would wait there. And then, you know, these like nice Americans would show up and be like, yeah, we'll, we'll help these people out. You know, it was, um, yeah. And so we were sponsored by um, a group of families in Carlisle. And uh, so they sponsored our family of 12 and we went to Carlisle and they helped us find, you know, apartments and jobs and all that stuff. And so that's where we, I ended up growing up in small town PA. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Small town PA is like we mentioned a, a different world almost. It's not Philly. It's it not is, Pittsburgh. Yeah. And like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was definitely like it was very much like the 1950s, you know, like like big time. So um and I think probably, you know, I don't know the exact census numbers, but it was very white, predominantly white. I would say like 90 percent white. And then um, and then we were like the only Vietnamese refugee family there growing up. Yeah. And like a lot of your book is obviously about your time, you know, growing up. And like the chapter you read is about how we have no control over our adolescence. And that is our own metamorphosis. Mm hmm. And like the subtitle yeah, is about yeah. it's a it's about a misfits memoir, right? What? Yeah. But you're I feel like you're the book you present yourself as a misfit in many ways. How did you feel? Like you, like you 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 describe yourself as a misfit. How were you a misfit in, in the different ways? Sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> how wasn't I a misfit? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's a better question. Um, yeah. 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 So I mean, I think you know, like I think you. You know, I think uh, I think the the first phase of that awareness or the awareness that like, oh, I'm not like everyone else or I don't fit in, you know, comes early. Um, and, you know, it's because like I'm the only Asian kid or even, you know, sometimes just even the only not white kid in my classes up until high school. Um, but I was definitely the only Asian kid for a long time, like, you know, probably from kindergarten until eighth or ninth grade. Um until high school and then you know high school was bigger because it was like the convergence of all the middle schools and stuff so then you were just like oh there's another asian kid you know but um you know and like so so 
even early on, like in kindergarten or first grade, like I was aware, like, okay, like I'm not like all the other kids. So obviously like as a young kid, like you're just like trying to fit in. So you just do everything in your power to not stand out or not be weird. Cause that's, you know, I mean, that's what the kids, you know, sort of zero in on when they're, you know, sort of looking to pick on you or, you know, single you out or separate you from the herd. Um, and then, you know, I think I just didn't, you know, so like on the, on the sort of public or the school front, like that was sort of the first and earliest piece of it, you know, and then at home, like, I think my parents just didn't understand, you know, as I was Americanizing more and more, like my parents sort of didn't understand why I wasn't sort of adopting to their values, you know, and sort of this very strict Vietnamese expectation that, you know, I am totally deferential to my elders and I'm going to, you know, keep up things like, you know, learning the Vietnamese language, you know, like reading and writing and, you know, and I was just, I was just so worried about not fitting in at school that I just thought like, I, why do I need to, you know, keep up with like learning Vietnamese as a written language? It just seems like a waste of time, you know, and also just kind of that independence, that independent thinking that I think American culture really loves and Vietnamese culture is like, no, you do as I say, like, I'm your parent, you know? And, And so like that, you know, once I hit adolescence and I was sort of like becoming, you know, a teenager, like it just, it just was exacerbated by how strict um, mm-hmm. my parents were. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so pretty much at home and at school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, and then socially in high school, did you find yourself like veering towards wanting to stand out more? Um, I, I mean, only in the sense that, um, no, not really. I mean, I think I, at least early on, like in, I, I wanted to fit in and just like be one of the kids as much as possible. And then I think at at some point, like when I felt like this is not, it just wasn't working. Like I, that just happened to collide with my discovering like skateboarding and punk rock, you know, that also sort of also happened concurrently with, you know, sort of kids getting into physical fights like fist fights and, and the one saving grace for me was that like my skateboard and punk rock friends, you know, were always willing to, you know, they always had my back, you know, if I was, if I was getting bullied by like rednecks, you know, I mean, we got into fights with rednecks like all the time, you know, they're just like these like hicks and they're, you know, driving their trucks and they're, you know, yelling things at you. And um, so it was definitely like safety in numbers. So, so not only did I love skateboarding and punk rock, but it also was like, like literally, they protected me when I was like out on the streets and yeah. So, yeah. So I think like that piece of the subculture was really, um, yeah, just so important for me. The the book ends with graduation night, 1991, but mm. then your life yeah. post the memoir is kind of what I want to focus on a little bit here. You sure. I, I like, I'm trying to find it on your About Me page. Um, it's just how you write. It's perfect. <laughs> I majored in classical languages and literature at Bard College. How did no one talk me out of that? Uh, that's <laughs> why, what, I mean, so your your TED Talk that you talked about is about language. Mm-hmm. And you talked about, you know, you, growing up and learning Vietnamese as a written language and speaking it. Mm-hmm. What drew you to this major at Bard College? It was, uh, you know, I think um, it was really a little bit of dumb luck and a little bit of who I am. I think like we, like I, 
um, I just want to assign, you know, so much of where I am and how I got here to luck, right? Like, like I, I don't want to take too much credit for it. Like some, some, it's definitely being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, as a small aside, like, you know, when my family was fleeing Saigon, like we all got on a bus and then we all got off that bus and then the bus got hit by a rocket and blew up. You know what I mean? Like, like I can't, no one can take responsibility for that. Like we just, you know, we just happened to get on the bus, get off the bus and then the bus blew up and then everyone died. And if we'd stayed on it, we would have been dead. And then that would have been the end of my book. Right. Um, but uh, so, so anyway, so um, I just happened to, I went to Bard to double major in art and English. Um, and within like the first semester, I was like, oh, like English sucks. I, I hate this major. And then, and then I felt the same way about art. I was like, oh, this, this is not the, it just wasn't the experience that I thought it was going to be. And um, I just happened to be sitting at lunch one day and talking to somebody. And he said, oh, I'm, he said, I'm taking ancient Greek. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I like my ears perked up and I was like, oh, what? I was like, I'm into that. Like, and like now I know, like I'm, my personality is I really love to kind of redline myself. Like if it's hard and scary, I will absolutely, I'm interested. Like I'm totally game, you know? Um, and so, <laughs> and so I was like, Oh, okay, let's see what this is all about. It was like so brutal and hard and I just totally fell in love with it. And, uh, and so I just, by the spring of that freshman year, I was like, yep, I'm doing this thing. Um, so just by dumb luck, I just happened to be sitting at the table with this guy who was like, I'm taking Greek and it's super hard. And I was just mm -hmm. in the midst of like really hating my major. So, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and then you eventually teach Latin. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Was that dumb luck or was that like the only career path maybe you could have taken with the background <laughs> you, you did? No, no, no. Right. Yeah, totally. It's, um, so yeah, I, I took Greek and then I took Latin and then I, you know, I learned Sanskrit. I like minored in German. Like I, I just sort of started taking the languages. Uh, and then my senior year um, at Bard, I, um, yeah, it was really like, uh, what am I going to do with the degree in classics? You know, like I applied to uh, a grad program and went to U University of Massachusetts at Amherst and then got my master's and then went off and taught yeah, high school Latin. I mean, I, I could have, I guess, done like a, a PhD track. I was actually in the, later on, like in the late 90s, I was actually in the midst of applying to PhD programs and then kind of came to my senses. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> um, yeah. And then, and then part of like what like I, I find so fascinating about you and then life in general is like these, you have these two parts of your life. You're, you're a Latin teacher, which I feel like if people close their eyes, they can envision what a Latin teacher might look like. <laughs> and you're not sure. it. But you also, <laughs> no, right. you're all, you also became this accomplished tattoo artist. How did, yeah. it was that dumb luck? Yeah, that was also like, I, you know, that was, uh, I, so I was getting, that was part of like, the, the tattoo thing was planted pretty early on in, in sort of that punk rock subculture. Um, I just never got tattooed because it was just expensive and I couldn't afford it. So when I was in college, as soon as I had any money whatsoever, like I would, I spent it on getting tattooed. And then um, the short version is I became friends with one of the guys who was tattooing me. And then, um, and then while I was in grad school, um, I, he encouraged me to apply for a tattoo apprenticeship. And so I did. And 
it just happened that that was in New York City. And so I got the apprenticeship and they said, yeah, if you want to move to New York, we'll teach you how to tattoo. That was 1997. And I was like, yep, that sounds great. I'll move to New York. Yeah. So a little, yeah, also just kind of luck. Um, I mean, I think a combination of like, you know, being really, you know, having the drive and the, you know, sort of enthusiasm for it, um, maybe a little bit of aptitude, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the aptitude is, you know, counts for everything, you know, but being in the right place at the right time is part of it too. Um, but I, you know, I think Adam, just to say, like, I think I, I really appreciate your saying, like, like we all know what a Latin teacher looks like and it doesn't look like you. And like, I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> and I'm also like, I wonder why that is, right? Like, I think people, I, yeah, you know, like, I think it's just like an interesting line of inquiry, right? Like what, like, why do we think that, you know, like the Vietnamese kid can't be the Latin teacher, right? No, or is it just because right. we think of like nuns, right? I guess, yeah, <laughs> like, I, I mean, like, you with a ruler. <laughs> no, it's so true. I think it's, uh, it's interesting because I taught high school English for two years. I was bad. I was not a good teacher. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but like, I was definitely that, that prototypical, like, oh, a mid 20 year old hipster who loves literature and he's teaching it. Right. Like, and I fit that mold, right, right. but and I feel like there's yeah. a certain teacher, like, like, I think it's it's American media is what it is. They want a Latin teacher mm. to be an old bald guy with a beard and a tweed jacket. Mm. Like that's what they yeah. that's what that's what American media shows us. And um, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. Why can't the Vietnamese kid with tattoos be a Latin teacher? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I don't know. I like, and I think that I spent so much time, you know, thinking about like, where do I fit in and why do I feel like I don't fit in and what makes sense? And, you know, and I totally agree with you. I think it's part of our culture. Like it maybe it's maybe bigger than just like the media piece of it. You know, I like, I think a big piece of my book that I, that I want to kind of explode is, you know, or embrace rather, let me say this, like that I want to embrace is a, the paradox of who we are, right. That, that I, I wanted to write about sort of all the paradoxical parts of myself um, and really like, and, and not feel like I had to pick and just lay them all out there, you know, in the hopes that readers will read, you know, encounter the book and think, oh, you know what, like, I don't, I don't have to make sense of everything. Like things can just be paradoxical or contradictory and that's okay. You know, and a lot of that, I think I drew, I didn't explicitly reference the poem, but, you know, I think Walt Whitman says it, you know, so well in his, you know, song of myself when he says, you know, do I contradict myself? So then I contradict myself. You know, I am large. I contain multitudes. And um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of lay that out there as much as I could. Yeah, as you were talking, I just think that's that's what makes humans interesting as these paradoxes within ourselves and how it's so easy to contradict ourselves because our story is not written and we are always going through a metamorphosis in some way. Totally. To, to go back to that chapter that you read the beginning of. I, yeah, 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 absolutely. No, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. no, no. Go. I mean, I was just, I'm just thinking, there's so much I want to cover with you because I know this book, <laughs> it's just, it covers a very specific part of your time, of your life, and, and the rest of your life is also, it's so interesting. Before I forget, the title, Saigon, mm. was it's mm. genius, first of all. Just Oh, thanks. Yes. Thank you. Um was that always going to be the title? Um no, I didn't I didn't um I think I no, I didn't have a title. Um and I think I was just writing it, writing it, writing it, writing it, and then I was actually sitting in the waiting room um 
my daughters were at jujitsu class. There's like a kid's jujitsu school and I was sitting there and I was taking notes on something and I was thinking about it. And then it just kind of like struck me like it, it like, like I knew what I wanted the title to capture. And I was kind of like playing, I mean, I have like a notebook with like tons of like ideas and then it kind of like popped into my brain. I was like, yep, that's it. Like it was definitely like i I'll know it when I hear it and I heard it and I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I, it needs to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. As someone who loves language and like wordplay, that is, it's just a, uh, when I was explaining the book to someone, I was like, no, it's Sai God. <laughs> there's like, there's a comma. Oh there, yeah. You know? No. And no, thank you. And I, and that's exactly. So like, I, I mean, if, you know, like to unpack it, right. Like, so I think, you know, I wanted the title, you know, obviously like if you see it written, it like sort of has this wistful kind of melancholy feel to it. Right. Cause of Sai and gone. Right. But um, but when you hear my name and you say Saigon, you think of the city in Vietnam, Saigon. But it's not. So then you have to then you have to stop and explain yourself, which is which is actually like my experience for ordering anything ever on the phone, where I have to stop and spell out my name and like no 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 it's this no 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 it's that. So in some ways, like I'm recreating the experience for anyone who has to explain the title, like pretty much every day for me. <laughs> um, and also the idea of like something looking one way and sounding another way, you know, I think is also kind of encapsulated in it. So, um, so thanks for being excited about the title. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like you, you just said there, it, 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 it looks one way and it, it, it acts a different way. It's just like a Vietnamese tattooed guy teaching Latin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then because you live in Maine and I love Maine, I, like I mentioned, my father lives in Maine when I was teaching, and even before I was teaching, I would go up at, during summers. What's your favorite part of Maine? Um, I, you know, for me, like I love um, the, I, I mean, Portland, I think in specific, in particular, um, I think it's got like all, for me, it's got like sort of all the amenities that I would want in a big city. Um, and then all the livability of like a small town. Um I love kind of like that. There's like kind of like a bristly Yankee vibe that I really love. You know, like some people might mistake it for rudeness, but I, I just really love that, you know, where you stand with people, you know, like there's like, they, they don't soft pedal anything. They don't bullshit you. Like, it's just like, um, they're kind of dicks, but then like you, they warm up to you or, or you think they're dicks, but like, actually they're really nice. <laughs> you know, like My plumber is like that. Like, I was like, is this kind of going to rip me off or like, no, like I love my plumber. He's like amazing, but he's just kind of like a little rough around the edges. So I really love, um, that kind of, it's, it's, it's harsh and direct, you know, kind of like the winter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, I think exactly. Portland is, is one of the best cities in America, Portland, Maine, not Portland, Oregon. I know yeah. you and I understand what we're talking about, but <laughs> listeners might be like, wait, there's yeah, a Portland like... in Maine. Um, yeah. And like, just like, even like the downtown area, Congress street, it has like, you know, yeah. like coast city comics and like, there's like an old movie theater yeah. and it's just like, it just feels yeah. perfect every time I'm there. Yeah. 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 Do you come and visit your, uh, your father and uh, often like once a year? I was doing once a year and I think I haven't, Last time we, he and I met in New York City instead of me going all the way up to Maine. Um, just because it's mm. so difficult to get to from like, I was living in Phoenix, so it's like Phoenix to Boston, then the two yeah. hour bus ride. Or even if right, I fly, because right, right. yeah. he, lives, he lives an hour north of Portland, so then it's like an hour drive exactly. in the dark. 
But uh, right, yeah, right. I'm hoping to get back soon just because, I mean, once all this is over, I guess, really. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Which, You'll be like, oh, maybe I'm going to move there. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, do, I do love it. And then kind of to just to wrap up, you are you have a tattoo sure. shop in Portland. Yep, um, yep, Tsunami Tattoo. Tsunami yep. Tattoo. How, how has COVID-19 affected Tsunami Tattoo? So we are, yeah, we closed um, in the middle of March per the governor's order. Um, Governor Mills closed all non-essential businesses. Um, I think like, like, I think March 15th or 16th, I think I can't remember, but, um, but that was when everything shut down. So we've been closed since mid-March and, uh, you know, I think we're just hunkering down and hoping that we'll be open at some point in May, hopefully, or June, um, which will be like the high season for the summer. But I think, you know, like every day or every week, you know, we're just sort of watching the news. I mean, at, at the end of the day, like, I just hope everyone is safe and, you know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm also kind of white knuckling it for all of our friends who are in the restaurant industry. You know, I think like that's, that's so unforgiving and Portland has just kind of built it, built everything around the restaurant industry for so much of it. Um, like all the national press and everything has been about like Portland is a foodie city and we have these like world-class restaurants and all of a sudden it's like they've been closed for six weeks. So it's really, I'm feeling for all of our friends. Yeah, much. like I know we joked about how you and I are just wearing sweatpants, <laughs> and your coworkers are your daughters right now. But yeah, you're right. It's um, yeah, yeah. The restaurant industry and like the music industry, like, and I'm not talking yeah. about like you know the Beyonces and Paramore, you know, who are selling tickets no matter what. I'm talking about like, mm-hmm. those people who get right, in, right. who get in a van and live that punk rock life and just drive across the yeah, country. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah, we just you know I just heard about some friends of friends who got like you know they're you know it's like a dream case scenario right like you get like a shot at like being on the stage at Coachella you know like and then all of a sudden it's like it's canceled and you're just like oh no I mean like again like if you know you're like the national or you know whoever it's not a big deal but like if you're just like a small indie band and you think like that's your big shot and then all of a sudden it's like nope yeah I guess you know it's life right like you gotta roll with it and uh get back up right (laughs) Thank you so much to Fook for taking the time to talk to me. If any of you are near Portland, Maine, if you live in Brooklyn, make the drive up. His tattoo shop, I looked through it. His work and his co-workers' work is so beautiful. And Portland is just a great city, so you should just check it out. You can find Fook on the internet at fookskywalker.com, and his Instagram is fookskywalker. You can find me at DayBeautiful on all of the social media and DayBeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. Everyone stay safe out there. We're flattening the curve. We have a chance to beat this quicker than possible, even though our current administration refuses to do anything that makes sense. Everyone stay safe. Until next time. Bye.